Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. <clears throat> Do you know why your community is being investigated? The Cardinal decided on a new method of bringing um, correction into the community. And that was by sending a group of priests to interrogate every sister about what she thought of the way the community was going. Don't you think it will take too much time to fix your hair if you were to change your habit? Is the rule of silence being kept? Where will all of this experimentation lead your community? Each of us were interviewed several times by different representatives. Do you remember any of the questions? I, I prefer not to go into the details because they're really uh, rather embarrassing. Do you think the sister's sex life is affected by reading novels? Do you know how pornographic Ulysses is? Do you want to look like a floozy on Hollywood Boulevard? And then they relayed the message back to the Cardinal that our community was moving too fast and that we were very much determined on our uh, progression. And those were scenes from Rebel Hearts as activist L.A. nuns in the vanguard, counting priests as well, you might say practicing what they preach and putting meaning back into this holiday as those Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary have challenged the Catholic Church since the 1960s, agitating, defying, and demanding a reshaping of the way things are that continues to resonate today. More about that coming up as we hear from the director of the film and those nuns. But first, the Bro Binge Report, Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro with the year's wrap-up report and what to watch online or not, and his first in a series of deep-dive episodes into what that military-industrial entertainment complex is up to, now and into the new year. This is Bro on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Year in Global Streaming. Welcome to the Omnicronverse. This year's Top 40 serial TV series unfolds against a background of continually rising inequality as Thomas Piketty of Capital in the 21st Century and company released their figures charting global disparities exacerbated by COVID, front page news in Le Monde and ignored in the U.S. Billionaires have captured much more of the global wealth since the onset of COVID and part of the increase in profits is from that enormous moneymaker, the streaming services, expected to generate $70 billion in revenue in 2021, with almost half of all of the global profits going to U.S. streamers. Meanwhile, the wealthiest 10% own 76% of the riches of the world, while the bottom 50% own only 2%. It's this group that also leads in the destruction of the world through the carbon emissions that sustain its extravagant lifestyle. The most unequal level of emissions being in North America, where the same 10% are responsible for approximately 75% of the pollution that is killing the earth, while the bottom 50 are responsible for only 10%. The need to produce constant weekly product to match streaming competitors reached a level of frenzy this year, to the point where the pressure put on industry workers resulted in even a traditionally sweetheart union like the Yahtzee sanctioning a strike, and movie producer and star Alec Baldwin shooting a camera woman who was a Yahtzee activist, possibly because of the hiring of props and arms personnel with little or no experience in order to hasten production. Three parables illustrate the nature of this profit lust heightened by the persistent presence of the virus, which has once again accentuated the drive to streaming as Facebook's metaverse, where all life is lived online, cannot but bear the traces, not just of Marvel's Spideyverse, but also of COVID's Omnicron, as we are all welcomed to the Omnicron-verse. The first story involves what used to be, as Theodore Adorno termed it, a mark of suffering, now reduced to simple branding, 
as the level of daily commodification also reaches new heights. Netflix's reality series, Coming Out Colton, pretends to be the painful story of Colton Underwood, the NFL linebacker turned star of ABC's The Bachelor, a heterosexual Cinderella fantasy which two seasons ago starred Colton as the prince. Colton acknowledged, after the fact, that he's gay. And thus that the whole season, and perhaps the whole idea of the show, was a farce. In the Netflix series, Colton comes out to his parents, but does it on camera in a way that is, rather than an authentic moment, just a step in his further enlistment under the rubric of the star-making machine. The most cynical aspect of the show, though, involves Netflix's use of the series to take a swipe at one of the biggest moneymakers of its most contentious streaming rival, Disney, which owns ABC, where The Bachelor has been one of its major hits. The pain of the homosexual experience and the joy of its normalization both take a backseat to personal aggrandizement and industry competition. The streamers using the documentary to attempt to show up the populist simplicity of the network while calling attention to its own supposed sophistication, while in actuality, simply laying bare the cutthroat nature of the business. The second revelation also involves Disney, which recently hired as a new guardian of its image and public relations, Jeff Morrell. The Disney family brand has been built on ferociously concealing any of the contradictions that arise in the entertainment industry. With the former guardian, Xenia Muka, nicknamed Mother Crocodile and Director of Revenge, Morell, her replacement, is currently working with British Petroleum, trying to burnish its image after the Deepwater Horizon spill, which devastated the Louisiana Gulf Coast environment and economy. His previous position was as Pentagon press secretary in charge of promoting and putting a smiling face on the illegal, unlawful, and murderous U.S. invasion of Iraq. This hiring then casts in concrete the military-industrial entertainment complex with Morrell, now keeping the Disney skeletons in the closet, just as he's done for the polluter BP and the Pentagon war criminals. With the Pentagon flack now fronting for Disney, it's difficult not to compare the way the U.S. dominates the streaming industry with the way it dominates the weapons, or rather war industry, with the U.S. defense budget greater than that of the next 11 countries combined. And the problem is China? The third item puts to bed the lie, perpetuated by both the Obama and Trump presidencies, that the industrial economy is returning to the West. Since the announcement of the Disney Plus streaming service, that is the move of entertainment to a symbolic, virtual, or digital economy, the company has generated more worth on the stock market than Ford or General Motors, the former engines of U.S. growth. Is there hope within this bleak news? Yes, indubitably. There were a number of series this year which rose above their labels and companies and either struck blows aimed at illuminating social problems, my top 20, which with some doubling up is a top 24, or with supreme competence told compelling stories in serial form, my 10 honorable mentions. Plus, those who rose are, are rather sunk to the level of five worst with a bonus worst. 40 series in all, called from the 135 series I watched this year from 13 countries, stressing the need to span the globe to find those gems which contradict the general trend toward ever more meaningless and more frenzied frivolity and fiddling while the planet burns or is consumed in either a nuclear holocaust or a viral apocalypse. And this is Bro on the Global Television Beat, signing off and breaking glass for 2021. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And coming up next in the Arts Express screening room, A Communist Christmas. This is the story, the fantastically true story, of Herbert A. Philbrick, who for nine frightening years did lead three lives. Average citizen, high-level member of the Communist Party, and counter-spy for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. For obvious reasons, the names, dates, and places have been changed, but the story is based on fact. The Communist Party does not believe in Christmas, except as it can turn it to its own advantage. This is the story of an attempt by the Communists to cash in on the spirit of the Christmas season.
Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, comrade. Oh, hello, Jack. What can I do for you? Herb, I want you down here right away. Oh, not right away. Can't, can't this wait till tomorrow, whatever it is? I, I promised my kids I'd help them trim their tree. It's important to them. Well, I'm sorry, Herb, but this is important, too, to the party. We'll expect you in 20 minutes. Comrade Herb has the Christmas spirit. Well, then he should be delighted with this assignment. He'll be in 20 minutes? Yes. Good. Right up to the fifth floor, then take the stairs down two floors. The Communist Party's no conspiracy. We just run up and down back stairways to keep in condition. Hello, Comrade Herb. Merry Christmas. Look, I'm here now. If it's all the same with you, I'd like to get this over as soon as possible, whatever it is. Yes, I know, Herb. You want to return home and decorate your Christmas tree. Charming idea. And so very germane to the whole concept of class revolt. I must remember to commend it to our National Council in my next report. All right, all right. My wrist has been slapped. What are my orders? You'll get them inside. Now? We'll see. Just memorize it so that when you get the phone in your hand, every phrase will come to you as though it were your own. Comrade Irene, this is Comrade Hurd. How do you do? Apart from his duties as a loyal member of a pro-4-cell, Herb has gained some distinction as an advertising executive and a trimmer of Christmas trees. We might as well get right down to cases, Herb. Comrade Jack has told me enough about you that I know I may speak freely. You might call what we are doing a pilot effort. In brief, this is the plan. We're going to have a crew of telephone salesmen at work within an hour. I've given them their pitch with the greatest gimmick in the world. They're asking for money to feed hungry kids on Christmas Day. Can you imagine anyone with a full stomach turning that down? And you'll be right in the center of the whole show, Herb. You'll be in charge of the collectors. How much are you pitching for? If we take in less than $100,000 between now and noon of the 25th, we're a failure. Wow. You've got to get to Special Agent Jerry Dressler. But how? How are you going to do it? There's the phone right in front of you, and here's the copy. All right. Mr. Castle. Oh, this is the Reverend Mr. Agnew. I'm calling to wish you a Merry Christmas. And to tell you something about, uh, well, what our churches are doing this holiday season. Trace this call on special line 1334. Now, I think you'll agree, Mr. Castle, that the day we celebrate as the birthday of our Lord should be the last one on which any child of any creed or race should know hunger. And with the help of good and generous people like yourself, we hope to see that this won't happen in our city. No matter what church may be your preference, regardless of how often you attend, I'm sure you'll want to donate something to the All Faiths United Christmas Fund. The tracer's on. Keep him talking. That call came from a phone in commie headquarters. That's very interesting. The caller introduced himself as a Reverend Mr. Agnew, but the voice was Herb Philbrick. This is Arts Express, and in a music interlude, this is the Zarfona, a mechanical string instrument invented in the Middle Ages, played using a hand crank connected to a wheel, sweeping the strings to create haunting music. Thank you, Andre Vinograd, who has mastered this medieval wheel fiddle.
And next up on Arts Express. Hollywood, California, home of a religious order which keeps making headlines. The Immaculate Heart College was alive with highly trained, ambitious women. These ladies were kick-ass and kind of subversive. There was a big peace march, and the nuns in the school were marching with us. If you really believe something is wrong, put your body on the line. Good Catholics were not sending their daughters to Immaculate Heart because they felt it was a little dangerous. We'd certainly brought criticism from the Cardinal. That Cardinal was not going to put up with those uppity women. Cardinal McIntyre was very powerful in those days. He was the boss. Mackin' Heart sisters drifted away from authority, and that was really the big problem. <gasps> they thought it was blasphemous. I think he viewed nuns as coolie labor for his schools. Sisters complained about the conditions of their jobs. The cardinal started censoring the faculty. There were legions of young nuns where all they felt was defeat. We said, we have to stand up and say, this is what we will do. Clearly, we were in a boat that needed desperately to be rocked. The Immaculate Heart Sisters taught me, you must follow your conscience, even if it goes against what the Pope himself has to say. There's a sense in which we've always been in trouble. <laughs> it was a marvelous statement of women. We did what we thought was right. We did it because we thought it was just. And those were scenes from Rebel Hearts, a film about those trailblazing L.A. nuns in their historic battle since the 1960s, protesting racism and U.S. wars while combining issues surrounding politics, education, and the arts and along with priests going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Catholic Church hierarchy. The Immaculate Heart College was alive with highly trained, ambitious women. These ladies were kick-ass and kind of subversive. There was a big peace march, and the nuns in the school were marching with us. If you really believe something is wrong, put your body on the line. Good Catholics were not sending their daughters to Immaculate Heart because they felt it was a little dangerous. We'd certainly brought criticism from the Cardinal. <gasps> they thought it was blasphemous. I think he viewed nuns as coolie labor for his schools. Sisters complained about the conditions of their jobs. The Cardinal started censoring the faculty there were legions of young nuns where all they felt was defeat. We said, we have to stand up and say, this is what we will do. Clearly, we were in a boat that needed desperately to be rocked. The Immaculate Heart Sisters taught me, you must follow your conscience, even if it goes against what the Pope himself has to say. We did what we thought was right. We did it because we thought it was just. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In the early 1960s, a hidebound Catholic church attempted to modernize with a movement known as Vatican II. But some church people, nuns and priests, wanted changes that were a bridge too far for Vatican II. In Los Angeles, the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the church hierarchy, involving themselves in anti-war and social justice movements. I'm very happy to have as the guest today Pedro Cos, the director of a new film documentary called Rebel Hearts, about those rebel nuns of the Immaculate Heart Convent. Hi, Pedro. Hi, Jack. Pedro, tell us about this new film. Well, Rebel Hearts is a story about the incredible Sisters of the Immaculate Heart, who in the 1960s heeded the call to reform of Vatican II and began to make changes only to find that the changes that they were doing were upsetting the 
Archbishop of Los Angeles, Cardinal McIntyre, who tried to control them, but they stood firm, and that led to the the showdown that ensued between them and the hierarchy of the church. And it really went up to the Vatican. Yes, it went all the way up. They felt that the reforms that they were making were very much in line with the call to change by Vatican II, which called for the the Catholic Church to open, as they called, the doors and the windows of the church. You know, the Immaculate Heart Sisters took that call very seriously. And they were an order of extremely well-educated women who were educators. And in order to be the best educators that they could be, they felt it was really necessary for them to go out and to be a part of that world and to take part of the movements that were taking place during that time. Vatican II, we're talking about the years about 1962 to 1965. John F. Kennedy is the first Catholic president of the United States. And American soldiers are being sent to Vietnam in large numbers at that point. And it's also a time that women in that era were even more restricted in their roles than now. You know, one of the reasons why so many women, especially earlier in the 1950s, post-World War II, decided to join religious orders. I mean, Anita Caspery, who becomes Mm -hmm. the, the head of the order, one of the many reasons that she joins, I mean, she loved this. She was educated by the Immaculate Heart Order, but she also didn't see marriage as something for her, you know? And what were the options for someone who was brilliant and a genius and had so much to contribute if they didn't want to get married and raise a family? So she saw this as a life, as, a, as an opportunity to actually lead a life that was not a domestic life and to have a career. And what, what did one do then to become a nun? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with The Sound of Music, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, that is, you know, the, Maria, when we, we first meet in The Sound of Music, she is a novice, not quite a nun. You become a novice and then you go through a period of education where you're, you're taught sort of the, the rules and the vows and takes a, a few months and years and then if eventually you take your you know your final vows put on your habit and you you see that process in the film what was the relationship of the convent to immaculate heart college the convent was right next door to the immaculate heart college which was the college that the immaculate heart sisters ran I that see. was the they staffed and they it was their college that's uh, was fully they owned the property, and so they ran that college, as well as the Immaculate Heart High School. Now, you mentioned Anita Caspery, who seemed in the movie, you can see she's a very brilliant woman. She has a PhD, and she seems dedicated to making sure that other women get P- their PhDs. But what was her upbringing, that she was so shrewd in a way, and yet so honest and direct? You know, Anita comes from a a conservative German Catholic family. Mm-hmm. She was actually born in South Dakota, of all places. But very early on in her life, her family moved to Los Angeles and eventually educated at Immaculate Heart College. And her father, she credits him as always imagining her as a woman with a career, She, you know, at Immaculate Heart College was really kind of fell in love with this life and with this order and decided to to become a a woman religious. And this is a testament to the order. They, you know, knowing that um, she was going to be an educator, they sent her to get a master's at USC in literature and then to Stanford to get her PhD. This order of nuns in Los Angeles had more master's degrees and PhDs than all the priests in the very large Los Angeles Archdiocese combined. Wow. You can see in the film, the the students and the teachers seem so full of life, full of energy, the highly trained, professionally ambitious women, and all kinds of people, now this is the 60s, start dropping in, Buckminster Fuller, Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden, a, a very active art department, Sister Carita, dealing with religious subjects in a very unusual way. And they're starting to attract worldwide fame, in a sense. They are. Sister Carita was beginning to garner a lot of fame 
and notoriety in many circles mm-hmm. for her art. Well, if there's a villain in the piece, it's Francis Cardinal McIntyre. Tell us about him. What was Cardinal McIntyre's background like? He came from a very poor family. As a teenager, he started working in Wall Street as a runner on Wall Street Hmm. and developed a very astute business mind and financial mind because of that. But he grew up in a very conservative Catholic world, which followed a very strict rules and, and a hierarchy. And apparently he always wanted to be a priest. And so he entered seminary. But he did so without having college education. And at that time, in the United States, there was a very strong current in seminaries against the more intellectual education or the intellectual formation Mm -hmm. of priests. He was a a parish priest for a very, very short amount of time because the New York Archdiocese saw in him someone with a great financial mind. He rose up the ranks of the New York Archdiocese quite fast. And he has this plan. He comes to L.A. to expand the Catholic school system. And how did the nuns fit into his plans? In his mind, perfectly, because Los Angeles was really at at a period in its history of enormous expansion. And Cardinal McIntyre saw that opportunity to grow and to expand the Archdiocese by building churches, by building schools. And so how do you do that? You bring in nuns. And, you know, what the great thing about nuns at that time, it was that they didn't get paid. What do you need for schools? You need teachers. And who were teachers in Catholic schools in those days? Catholic nuns. And so he needed a lot. And the Immaculate Heart Sisters at that time were the largest order in Southern California staffing schools. And they began to be completely overstretched. I mean, there was an enormous demand. And talk about like 80 kids per classroom. Wow. Um, (laughs) So that's how overstretched that they were. And they felt completely overwhelmed and underprepared. So they didn't have teaching degrees or anything like that, or teaching experience even. Exactly. So I think that was really when things came to a breaking point in many ways. I like that in the film you have one sort of old line church person saying, the nuns took the vow of poverty and we kept it. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it was (laughs) clearly a labor union issue. (laughs) Exactly. There was an interesting split, it seems, in the education system because at the college, the, the nuns owned it, so they had more freedom from the cardinal than those who taught in the elementary and the high schools, didn't they? Exactly. And when it came to the parochial schools that were run by the archdiocese, they had no say. And there was all kinds of ferment at the college at that time, as we said. We mentioned Sister Corita Kent, and uh, she was doing all kinds of religious artwork, but it wasn't exactly Jesus in the manger, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, and especially as you get into into the 1960s, you know, the, all these movements in uh, social movements and movements in art and society are taking place in the college which is run by extremely well-educated women, is really kind of embracing the times. And Sister Corita is very much developing a voice of her own and creating beautiful art, but it's not not what one consider a traditional art. She's experimenting, experimenting with form, experimenting with messaging. And that caused a bit of a stir, uh, one could say, especially within the more conservative circles of the Catholic Church in Southern California, and especially uh, Cardinal McIntyre, who at many times thought her art was blasphemous. And so she became, mm. she becomes a big target of these more conservative forces in the church here in Southern California. But Corita was having exhibits around the world, and her work was seemingly everywhere. And I was surprised to learn that the, the famous love stamps of the U.S. Postal Office are hers. Yes, they are. I mean, you know, getting to know her body of work and connecting it to Corita and to this to this incredible order was kind of mind-blowing. Corita became the iconic icon of Parp art because mm-hmm. of the Immaculate Heart Sisters. Amazing. And she she became Times Woman of the Year and she was on the Christmas issue of Newsweek magazine. The artwork was enough to rankle Cardinal McIntyre. But then there's the matter of the Catholic Church's official support of the U.S. war in Vietnam, the U.S. war on Vietnam, I should say. 
What was the Immaculate Heart Sisters' role in protesting the Vietnam War? Well, they were very much opposed to the war. They were very for civil rights. I mean, one of the the sisters, Patrice Underwood, actually marched in Selma with Martin Luther King. But in terms of the war, they were very much against the war, and they really spoke out. And they also used the the college as a platform uh, for demonstrations and for actions against the war. They were very much almost to the left of their students in their opposition to the war. And they protested with the farm workers. And one of the nuns said she was arrested lots of times. If you think something is wrong, then it's important to put your body on the line. And that was um, Sister Pat Reef, uh, who was okay. a brilliant mind, who was very active in social causes and had a knack of getting arrested in, in protests all the way up to the, the 90s and 2000s. Um, so never really led up her extraordinary activism. Well, things eventually came to a head, didn't it? Especially over the labor dispute. The sisters had decided that they were not going to work under untrained, sleep-deprived, overcrowded conditions in the classrooms. So what happened after that? I mean, the whole this whole story is this order of women really taking power back into their own hands, really sort of, and saying, okay, this is what we're willing to do. And this is what we're, we, we're, we're not going to do. So they were basically saying in order for one of our sisters to do, to be able to staff the schools, they have to be properly trained and educated and ready to teach in a classroom. So they basically came together in their 1967 General Assembly, and they kind of drafted their decrees, which is the equivalent of their constitution, and to give the power to each sister to determine whether they wanted to wear a habit or not, which got a big stir from the media. But it was not just a habit. It was, and I think one of the, I personally think one of the things that really stirred the cardinal the most was the fact that they were going to be pulling out teachers from classrooms to have them properly trained. We'll leave it a bit as a cliffhanger here. What happened to the Sisters of Immaculate Heart when they came toe-to-toe with the Cardinal, who did not take kindly to their declaring their independence? But I'd just like to ask you, how would you assess the legacy of these women and then anything else you'd like to add? This was a watershed moment, not only for women religious in the United States, but I think the way women saw their role within the institution and outside of the the institution. And the other lesson that I think in, in their legacy is seen in the community that they formed after they left the church to bring justice to the world, to educate, to, you know, bring a force of good and, and they continue to do so. And I think they spurred imagination of thousands of people, especially their students they're women students who they educated to be leaders in society, to be lawyers, to be doctors, to be artists, to go out into the world and create change and be a force of good. Well, thanks so much, Pedro. I've been speaking with Pedro Cost, director of Rebel Hearts, a new documentary about the women of the Immaculate Heart of Mary who stood up to the hierarchy of the church. Thanks so much, Pedro. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Faithfulness to what you believe in, despite opposition and oppressive power, and conscience will not yield to oppressive power. To be kind and generous, to live and love community, and to work together for the common good and for the world that we live in that is suffering and needs our prayers and our service. And Rebel Horse is out now in release. My name is Tongo Eisen Martin, and this is my brief but spectacular take on poetry as revolution. I was born and raised in San Francisco in an interesting time of transition, a time when 
the, really the corporatocracy was ascending. In a way, the streets still kind of belonged to us. Institutions still belonged to us. It felt like we had the keys to the buildings. Along the way, it all got bought up, and, and now I'm, I'm just in a city that's a, a, a strange and, and permanent occupation in which even the wealthy seem to be incarcerated. To walk down the street in the Bay Area is, is, is really to, to walk through a dystopia. In one sense, it, it feels or has the facade of all this kind of aesthetic, you know, even human evolution. But really, you have people bouncing superfluous conversation to superfluous conversation, bouncing meal to meal, and the rest of us bouncing tent to tent, a bunch of condos and tent cities. This poem was titled, The Course of Meal. Apparently, too much of San Francisco was not there in the first place. This dream requires more condemned Africans, or put another way, state violence rises down or still life is just getting warmed up, or army life is looking for a new church and ignored all other suggestions, or folktale writers have not made up their minds as to who is gonna be their friends, and this is the worst downtown yet, and I've borrowed a cigarette everywhere. I've taken many a walk to the back of a bus that led on out the back of a storyteller's prison sentence, then on out the back of slave scars, but this is my comeback face. I left my watch on the public bathroom sink and took the toilet with me. Threw it at the first bus I saw eating single mothers half alive. It flew through the bus line numbered and on out the front of the White House that hopefully you find comfort downtown. But if not, we brought you enough cigarette filters to make a decent winter coat. My role in the Bay Area besides hanging on for dear life is to do what I can to transform culture from one that, that facilitates domination of oppressed people to one that facilitates resistance. I taught in prisons, youth homeless shelters, youth group homes, even youth psych wards. Everywhere our, our conditions are, are most wretched. A lot of what I actually pull into my craft, a lot of strategies I actually pull from other disciplines of art. Looking at a, a John Coltrane, looking at a, a Jimi Hendrix, trying to figure out what made them tick Playing with ideas, playing with patterns of logic does kind of stand outside of, of time uh, and doesn't require the same um, cultural uh, landmarks for anybody to, to engage your ideas and engage your words. So in that way, a poet's craft lasts a long, long time. And now on Arts Express. I was asked to uh, go to meet Harvey Weinstein for a dinner at the Beverly Hills ho Hotel uh, for a movie that I was going to do, uh, and he was giving me the new script. I arrived. They said, Mr. Weinstein, we'll see you upstairs. I went upstairs, you know, and thought, uh, you know, what's going on? But, oh, yeah, you know, he probably has the penthouse suite, which is what a lot of directors did when they came into town, st stayed in a big suite. And he opened the door in his white bathrobe. And he said, I can't move my neck, cannot move my neck. And, and I said, okay, well, I'll get you a massage. And he grabbed my hand and pulled it down towards his penis. I pulled it away. And he said, Rosanna, you're making a very big mistake. Look what I've done for Gwyneth Paltrow and Elle McPherson. Those are the two names he gave me. And I said, I'll never be that girl. And I left. And, you know, I told people. They told me to keep my mouth shut. I told my agent. One of my agents was that guy, Paul Felcher, that actually uh, testified for Harvey Weinstein. So that's strange in that time. Um, well, we knew, we knew that we—I was—I I knew I had been spied on by, because Ronan Farrell had told me that before, but what they had was a signed contract and the picture of me as a target. And that's what they show in the film, signed by Harvey Weinstein. So scary. Very scary. Mm. And uh, uh, he did this to a lot of people, and uh, that's, that's what he's done for years. And that was award-winning veteran actress Rosanna Arquette, who is known for Pulp Fiction, Desperately Seeking Susan, and starting out with Betty Davis in The Dark Secret of Harvest Home. And one of the first actresses to speak out against convicted rapist, film producer Harvey Weinstein. 
Arquette is in a new film, Eleanor Coppola's dramatic trilogy, Love is Love is Love. Here's Rosanna Arquette reflecting on that enigmatic title and more. Hi. Hi, Claire. Hi, and welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, one unique feature of this film, the third in the trilogy you're part of, Late Lunch, is how women talk to and interact with one another when men aren't around. What are your thoughts about that? Um, it, there's a lot of freedom. <laughs> women are a lot freer, I think, and not as, you know, as, uh, and so, you know they're open. They're more open. Not, I mean, that's like not, there's a lot of good men that I know they're fairly open, but it's when you put women together and it's a powerful force. Um, usually a, a good, powerful force of good. And when you have what we were lucky to do in the movie as these women and characters, but also as actors that's playing these parts um, coming together, it was it was an extraordinary experience and very loving and all like the our our you know the steering of the ship by Eleanor Coppola who created this whole thing for us to be able to do it in a beautiful way. And are there ways in which late lunch was liberating for you in that male-free zone, both as an actress when there are no men around, and in the real world for you as well? Well, it was it's wonderful when you know you have somebody like Eleanor Coppola calling up to like would love you to do this and 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 you know knowing that it's not about money, it's about a gathering of women and, and just say yes. And two weeks, it was like going to film camp. It was like going to college and connecting you know it was a, it was exciting and we all we shot in one house Rita Wilson and I shared a, a dressing room which was a, a bedroom in the house and um and just everybody had their personalities and connected in their ways and and at the end of the day you know and you have it because you know Rita wrote this beautiful song that's at the end of our that whole film um it, it really is about love mm. and to have an atmosphere where you're be able you're able to be creative and have the love in it, which also kind of save energy, creative forces, love too. It, it, it really comes. It's very similar energy. I think it is maybe the same energy, creative force and love, and it just you really felt that energy working on this film, and that was wonderful. I just I hope I would love us to come like do a sequel and come together again <laughs> and do that with Eleanor. You know. Now, Late Lunch is also about the challenges of women relating to one another across generations. What can you say about that cross-generational interaction you're part of in the film? Whew, it's a whole different world because, you know, we're, a lot of this generation is basically online, mm-hmm. connecting in Zooms, uh, connecting in ways that they're... Um, and, that, and I think the world has been super intense for young people coming up right now and um and you know we're just seeing it you know this the patriarchy you know when women came out in the me too movement you know and 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 we were getting somewhere then you had the Kavanaugh hearings you know what i mean it's just like there we're up against so much and so i feel i have a 27 year old daughter and you know and she's great but she, but it's it, like wow i i would find it extremely challenging right now and I'm very very blessed for the time that I did live in and grow up in mm. um, I feel not that it's a period of that but just that there's something there's something that I don't I can't it's a, I can't even say it I just want to put it into words just it's a it's a wisdom that may have come from you know being a child in the 60s that some of the kids now don't have you know and speaking of strong women, you started out back in 1978 in the dark secret of Harvest Home, when just as a teenager, you co-starred with Betty Davis. What are your memories of her? Oh, she did, you know, she did influence me. And when I just remember one day we were sitting on the set and it was really hot. And something broke and equipment broke and she just kind of just grabbed me and sat me on her lap. And I was 18. It was funny. And she goes, <laughs> this? is hell you know she was like and then she was started talking to me about just remember Rosanna you can't have both you can't have a career and a relationship and it was very haunting for me 
Um, I even made a movie, you know, exploring those, that theme of, you know, can you have both? Searching for Deborah Winger, where I interview all these women about balancing their lives with their careers. And it's always been kind of like that haunting them. The Red Shoes is my favorite movie. So I'm always like very fascinated by the theme, can you have both? Can women have both? Many, many, many successful women do have both and make it work. But you have to find that very special partner that is willing to, you know, allow their partner to be who they are meant to be, you know, and, and, and put aside any kind of feelings of jealousy and all those things. And so I think one of the great things of the, this, the positive side of the new generation is the women that are coming up now don't feel that they just do it. They have it, you know, they, they go and they're doing their work and, and they're able, I don't think they're choosing the relationship before their careers. A lot of them are, are, well, some will do, but a lot of them are out, and that's so important to them, and nothing is going to stand in their way, and and that is, that's good. Mm-hmm. And your character, Anne, in the film is mostly positive and supportive towards the others, but during your memory lane moment, you have a negative reaction about your first male sexual encounter in college. What can you say about that in relation to the challenges you faced as a female as well in the male-dominated film world? And how you prevailed, including against Harvey Weinstein. Well, I don't know if you're, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I definitely had my challenges in the male-dominated film world uh, as being one of the people that came out about Harvey Weinstein. So, um, and the, and my career directly being impacted in a negative way because of that coming coming out with that truth. So, um, uh, but to continue doing what you do um, and. Being able to do that without sabotage, which does happen often, but you know when you get the opportunities to just it's make it about. I have so many other things that I do creatively. I'm producing now and other things that like I don't have to be in front of the camera, but I do love when I'm doing it. I love acting, and you know I, I'd like to take this age I am now and find those wonderful characters, which I'm about to go do something that's a small little film um and and i get to you know explore someone's you know an an, a sober alcoholic figuring out her life and navigating her life sober um is is a is a a character that i'm about to do and looking forward to that and what is that film um it's called grapefruit and uh yeah and the title of this film love is love is love if it were any unfinished sentence, how would you complete what love is? Oh my God, love is well, there's love. It is what it is to me is compassion, empathy. Uh. Love is empathy. And any last word on why people should see love is love is love? Um, because I think they'll find something in it. They'll relate to it in some ways different. Like it's a, it's a generation. It's not a, it's, it's for, is it for, it's for anybody, but, and people are really enjoying it. And I really love when we're just hearing that a lot of men are enjoying it, which is ah. so great. Yeah. We, we just had a bunch of you know male journalists and they really love the movie and that's great. I, I was very happy to hear that. I think they, they were moved, especially I think by late lunch. Um, because at the end of the day, everybody's, dealing with, in some way, shape, or form, some sort of grief in their lives. Mm. And that's what we're doing, you know? Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Rosanna Arquette, for calling in. Thank you. Thank you so much, too. Thank you so much. Bye. And Love is Love is Love is just out now in release. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.